So I had a patient who was giving a lot of information that didn't really add up. I went out to confront him, um, and I said to him, you know, some of the doctors and nurses here feel like the information you're giving isn't adding up. You know, some of us are wondering if maybe you're feigning your symptoms. And he said, feigning? And I said, faking. And then he punched me in the face. It was really strong. Like, I felt the heat and the and the sort of energy of where his fist and my face met. And then, like, immediately one of the, the nurses, the psych techs who was on the floor, just, like, literally tackled him and was on him. And I remember her saying, like, I got him, doc! And then I said to her, you know, I want to press charges. Um, because he wasn't a patient. He was posing as a patient. And he had a long history of being arrested uh, and being at Rikers. He got sent back to Rikers for about four months. Um, and, it, you know, four months later, three o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call, like an automated recording saying, you know, the prisoner, like 71423, you know, uh, is being released tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. No further information. And then the recording hangs up and I'm just like uh, holding the phone at three in the morning uh, realizing that the guy that I sent to Rikers for four months is now going to be out. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner. And today we start episode two of our series on psychedelics. In this series, we look at the way revolutionary thinkers defy societal norms in order to advance medicine, redefine culture, and occasionally recalibrate our minds. This movement began brewing in the 60s, and since then, it's been slowly edging its way into the mainstream, whether it's through Silicon Valley elites microdosing or government-approved psychedelic therapies. And this series highlights the people who've helped lead the way. Today, we'll be talking to Julie Holland, a psychiatrist and researcher seeking to revolutionize the field of therapeutic medicine through psychedelic treatment. Throughout her life, Julie weaved academic excellence with drug experimentation, honestly, an unlikely combination, but it would ultimately pave the way for her work in the psychiatric field. And you might be thinking to yourself, hey, like I'm familiar with psilocybin and MDMA in like a party context or a rave context, but we'll also be looking at like what it means to process trauma. That's just one of many fascinating questions Julie is going to help us answer today. So buckle up for a story like no other as we head back into a 1970s Boston suburb where a spunky young Julie was growing up. I was born in the mid-60s. I grew up in the 70s in, in the suburbs. And there was, there was a lot of drugs when I was growing up. And my sister's friends were using drugs. And I was very interested in what they were doing. My sisters are older than I, two, four years older and six years older. So I, had, I was always sort of in a hurry to grow up and, you know, to do whatever the cool kids were doing. So I think, you know, the, the big, you know, part of my sort of narrative or story is that because I grew up in the 70s and there were a lot of drugs around and I was very inquisitive. I was interested in the brain. I was interested in psychology. You know, I was a kid who had like a subscription to psychology today. I tried a lot of drugs. You know, I, I smoked cigarettes when I was 10. I, I drank alcohol when I was eight. I was smoking cannabis by the time I was 12, 13. You know, I was, I've been thinking a lot about this and I, you know, I was like a tough kid, a tough girl. I was a tomboy. I grew up knowing my parents wanted boys. You know, my my mom wanted six boys. My dad wanted three boys. They had three girls. And, and I grew up sort of on some level knowing that I was like their last chance to have a son and that I disappointed them by being a girl. I did have a model of sort of a masculine girl. I grew up idolizing people like Jodie Foster and Christy McNichol and Tatum O'Neill. And, you know, these were all sort of women in entertainment who were tomboys, who were like masculine women. They were tough. I really, I like that. I resonated with that. Did you resonate with it because it's what you thought your parents valued or was it because, like, because that seems like adhering to what they would want rather than a rebellion? I'm not going to say that it rebelled against their sort of subconscious wishes for a son, but I will say it was a bit rebellious to be like a 10-year-old girl, you know, wearing her denim jacket with the with the collar turned up like she thinks she's James Dean. Are you kidding me? But definitely as, as an elementary school kid, as a middle school kid, I wanted to be tough and cool. And so maybe having a cigarette hanging out of my mouth, you know, had something to do with that. 
I have this image in my head of young Julie carrying herself with a kind of attitude and grit like you might only see in old Western movies, you know, the cigarette between her fingers as she emulates the stars and that kind of awkward self-consciousness that accompanies any kid playing grown up. And like this is the 1970s, big tobacco dominated and there's cigarettes everywhere. For most adults, cigarettes meant social hour, maybe stress relief, maybe habit, maybe addiction. And while I'm sure some of those things would ultimately factor in for Julie, it seems like this cigarette-holding persona was mostly just a way of her saying, fuck you, to society. The same rejection of norms she saw through icons like Jodie Foster and Christy McNichol. And she wasn't about to stop there. How were you introduced to, I mean, maybe the the waterfall or the cascading, uh, the the drug scene, um, like one leading to the other? or, Or did it look like that? You know, it was a because I had older sisters and they were having parties, it was always kind of around me. You know, like I remember my sisters would have like a party Saturday night and I would end up as a, as a little kid going to Hebrew school Sunday morning with a bit of a hangover because the night before I had figured out that if I have more than three beers, I vomit, you know, and that I have to just like limit it to two beers. So very early on, I was sort of experimenting with cigarettes and alcohol, but that was my childhood. I was a drug researcher from a very young age because I was always keeping notes. You know, I was really curious about like, what does this do? How does this feel? What time did I take this? What time did I have effects? Things like that. Like it just, I was kind of a natural born drug researcher. Did you think of, you know, what could happen to your brain? Or did you think of the legal repercussions for some of these actions? Was that even on your mind? You know, remember, this was before Just Say No. So the only drug messaging I honestly remember was like the after school specials, these ABC after school specials that would come on TV sometimes. And and sometimes there would be cautionary tales of, you know, kids who had become alcoholics or somebody who would take PCP and jump out of a window or something like that. But I, I honestly don't even remember thinking like this is legal or this is illegal back then. It didn't really get that interesting for me until I discovered cannabis or psychedelics. My early experimentation with alcohol and cigarettes, here's what I learned. Very first time I smoked cigarettes, I felt like really lightheaded and weird. And I thought that there was something in the cigarette besides just nicotine or tobacco because I I felt so dizzy and nauseous that I was like, oh, this is a weird pack of cigarettes. This isn't the way they're supposed to feel. So that was my first experience with with nicotine and tobacco was just like, uh, this can't be right. <laughs> this this doesn't feel good. Why would anyone do this? And it was after that sort of initiating experience that I started to get a sense of like how you smoke and how little you smoke. And, and it felt less bad to me as I went on. And then with alcohol, the, honestly, the thing I remember most about the very first time I ever had alcohol was the people who were watching me. I was at a concert for a band called the Ohio Players. And the people behind me were like, hey, look at that girl. She's drinking a beer because my aunt was letting me drink some of her beer. And I noticed that the people behind me were talking about me and, hey, look at this girl drinking a beer. And I I tell you, some part of my brain really took note that, you know, the adults behind me were paying attention to me because I had a beer in my hand. So moving from the physical ramifications of that to the mental ones, maybe going into cannabis, How did that feel different than your experiences with cigarettes and alcohol? Certainly there was more to explore with cannabis. It's, you know, one of the things I noticed was that it was really like different every time. I noticed how variable it was. I noticed how, you know, it affected my appetite or how much I ate. I noticed that if I got up too fast, I would get a head rush, which, you know, was sort of interesting to me how it could somehow, you know, make less blood flow to my brain. The thing I was really the most curious, honestly, was how you could take a tiny little piece of paper um, and it would completely turn your worldview upside down and you would have a completely different perspective. So I was really intrigued by LSD. Yeah. Julie, in short, was experimenting. Her curiosity was driving her directly towards substances that for most kids were completely off limits. But Julie had an active mind, one that was sharpened and hyper aware of what was going on around her. I'm sure that there was some amount of her that maybe thought to herself, hey, like if the adults can smoke cigarettes or sip a beer, why can't I? And on one hand, you had these after school programs pushing their anti-drug agenda, broadcasting dramatized situations with strong anti-drug messaging, basically aimed at people like her and young adults. But on the other hand, none of this stuff actually seemed that bad. 
in moderation at least. This experimentation encouraged Julie's tough girl attitude and gathered attention from adults. But all of Julie's grit and resolve was about to take a hit. I I had this sort of uh, social trauma happen to me in eighth grade. I was in the in crowd and friends with all the popular kids um, and then ended up being very, very good friends with sort of the the top girl in the in crowd. Um, she and I became such good friends and had sort of split off from the in crowd to some degree. And they ended up sort of deciding that we were gay and that um, that I must be a bisexual because I had a boyfriend. So if we were hanging out, that must mean that I was bi. And the in crowd sort of ostracized both of us. And I lost all my friends in eighth grade. It was really, really devastating at the time. I love that I can speak with it about it now, you know, with some measure of equanimity, because at the time it was the most traumatic thing that had ever happened to me. I lost all my friends and they were publicly uh, calling me bisexual and, you know, like yelling, hey, bye in the in the school hallway and bye bye at the end of the day while waiting for the bus. And I was totally ostracized and freezed out of all my friends. And some of those people I had been friends with since kindergarten. Freshman year of high school, I did have a new crowd. I hung out with the druggies and we took drugs together. It was fun. <laughs> I, you know, every weekend, like, you know, I would tell my mom I was sleeping at Roseanne's house and Roseanne would say she was sleeping at Pam's house. And then the three of us would just stay out all night roaming around the town, you know, and tripping or drinking or smoking pot or going to parties, older people, whatever we wanted, because we, you know, we didn't have a sleepover. We were we were out all night. I don't think it's all that unusual for teenagers to find high school to be a bit more liberating and enjoyable than middle school, where everyone's maybe a bit meaner and you're at a weird crossroads between child and teenager. You're forced to take sweaty pee classes midday. But Julie's experience was especially horrible as she was labeled an outcast at a time when most kids just want to fit in. Traumatizing though it was, in a sense, it liberated her. Now she could explore who she was aside from that crowd. And psychedelics wound up being a large part of that. I didn't hear about a lot of negative experiences. And some of my early experiences with psychedelics were were really fun. You know, things just like kind of goofing around with my friends, rolling around on the grass, getting the giggles, you know, laughing, crying that you're laughing so hard. Then, you know, crying because something really deep is hitting you and you're processing it. You know, I I mean, I just remember being impressed by like the intensity of emotions that could be evoked. And it was really just kind of like a fun, goofy thing. You know, back in high school, when you're taking psychedelics, you know, you're not like processing trauma or anything like that. You know, you're just like you're having fun. You're goofing around. You're rolling around on a basement floor. I really sort of treasured those experiences and I had I had some very fun experimental friends in early freshman year high school but you know we were still just kind of kids goofing around having fun together you know it didn't it wasn't supposed to be therapeutic I think that was a pretty early lesson for me from psychedelics was just you know that your perception can shift quite a bit after taking a really small dose of something like, you know, in a microgram range or a milligram range, and it can completely turn your worldview upside down and give you a completely different perspective. First of all, I grew to expect that from psychedelic experiences. And second of all, I really think I took that information in on a very deep level. I mean, you know, I was talking to somebody recently about, you know, the stuff that you learn in adolescence tends to stick pretty deep. You know, if you think about the stuff that you were doing when you were like 13, 14, 15 years old, Even if you haven't done it in 20 years, you can still, you know, it's just like riding a bicycle. Like there's muscle memory and things that you learn, like say you learn to play trumpet or you learn to speak French or something, you know, during those years, that stuff gets in there pretty deep and doesn't really get out of your system. And so for me, I had very intense psychedelic experiences in a particularly plastic formative time in my life. And so some of those lessons, like everything is connected and, you know, love is the answer and everything is interdependent. Those things got ingrained in me very, very early on that, you know, that things are inter interwoven and interconnected and that there is interdependence, you know, um, among everybody on the planet and, you know, how tiny and fragile the planet is in the scheme of the cosmos. I'm feeling connected and grounded to the earth. I got that on a very deep sort of molecular level early on, and it never really left me. The psychedelic lessons of Julie's youth 
became deeply ingrained in the core of herself. Cannabis, acid, and mushrooms had locked different chambers of Julie's mind, one that maybe couldn't be activated in that normal, sober state. A tree with leaves rustling in the summer breeze could be transformed into a colorful whirlpool of spinning patterns. Buildings could become prisons. The earth could appear to be breathing. It was a far cry from the grim warnings of the after-school program she'd been watching growing up. Felt like maybe she was able to turn her brain inside out and like examine it with a microscope. And beyond that, well, you know, it was just fun. But not all her trips would wind up going so well. I didn't really have any bad trips. And it, it really wasn't until this inadvertent PCP ingestion that I had any, anything approximating, approximating a bad trip. You know, I can't really say I accidentally took it because I willingly took something thinking that it was mescaline, but it turned out that it was PCP. And um, I had really classic psychotic experiences. I mean, one thing that happened was that I, I went to somebody's house and she was talking to her brother and I couldn't quite tell if they were speaking English or if they had made up some language that they were using in front of me so I couldn't understand what they were saying. But I felt like I couldn't really interpret their words, so I was looking at their body language and everything their bodies were doing was like a secret signal that I had to interpret. And then the other thing that happened later that night was that I was uh, on the couch kind of freaking out because I didn't like the way I was feeling and it wasn't going away. And Jimi Hendrix was playing on the radio. And I became convinced that because Jimi Hendrix had died of an overdose and now Jimi Hendrix was playing on the radio, that meant I was going to die of a drug overdose. So again, this is a referential ideation. This is something that happens in schizophrenia, that happens in psychotic states. And these are, these are all sort of classic things that happen with PCP ingestion. So a friend of mine ended up in the hospital with a horrible psychotic episode, and they, that is when we discovered that what we had been taking was, was PCP and not mescaline. So, I mean, I only took it once. It went away. It was terrible. My friend had, had done a lot more, um, had not only ingested orally, but had smoked it and, and um, was just sort of in a, a really bad place for a while. And what did you think of the ramifications of that? Were you, what, did this make you more interested in this whole world? Were you like, oh, maybe I need to curb it? My response to that was not, oh gosh, drugs are dangerous. I should never take them. You don't know what you're going to get. My response was, this makes drugs more dangerous. You should know what you're getting. You know, why, why is it that if I want mescaline, I can't get mescaline? And, you know, why do I have to take a chance that I want mescaline and I end up with PCP? So I, I was sort of outraged. Um, at our drug policy, as opposed to, oh, gosh, you know, this is all playing with fire and I should walk away. You know, it was like, oh, fire is useful. How do we make fire, you know, work for me? <laughs> you know, it was kind of that sort of a thing. What that experience for me really did to solidify for me is how scary and anxiety provoking a psychotic episode is and how important it is if somebody is in a psychotic episode that they are treated with sympathy and with kick gloves because it's terrifying. So I had a firsthand experience of what it's like to have referential ideation and psychotic thinking. You know, back in high school, like I didn't know for sure I was going to be a psychiatrist. I, I just knew I was going to be like a, a brain doctor. You know, I didn't know if it was going to be like neurology or neurosurgery or psychology or psychiatry, but I was always interested in how the brain works and how the brain sort of doesn't work and, and, you know, dysfunctions or misfunctions. So I got very interested in psychosis and, and schizophrenia because of that uh, inadvertent PCP experience. And so I don't, you know, people say like, you know, do you, you know, if you have a bad trip, do you regret it or something? But I think for most people, it's some sort of challenging experience that often you learn a lot from or it charts your course moving forward. I mean, so for me, like, yes, it was a very unpleasant experience, but I wouldn't trade it for anything because it, it ended up really, you know, sort of giving me my career. I had a psychotic break on acid where I, I like a lot of the things that you're saying, PCP, like I went through and I noticed that after that, like, I just felt like a ton of empathy for like the schizophrenics or like like the, for the, the people that I saw, you know, like homeless people on the street. And I'm like, oh, wow, I've made my brain go to that place. And that person is experiencing that like 24-7. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, 
was there any empathy attached to that or was it specifically just the interest in in finding out like like solving the puzzle right well i would say both i mean you know i once went to amsterdam and was hanging out with a bunch of people you know smoking pot or whatever you do in amsterdam and and i met this guy who like seemed a little bit like a crazy person and and, you know i don't speak much dutch he doesn't speak much english but he managed to convey to me he pointed to his head and he said trip trip always all the time trip and i i I was like oh god i can only imagine like how exhausting that must be for him you know that he just like cannot rely on his perceptions at any given time while this man could never leave the world of distorted perception, Julie was able to safely return to reality. And here, she'd become this sort of liaison between the sane and the insane. And to really understand, she started delving deeply into drug policy and psychological research. This is like a pretty remarkable response to a trip that seems really, really traumatic. And like to compound that, there are already so many narratives embedded in our culture that vilify the psychotic. But Julie didn't stigmatize that state of mind. She actually wanted to learn from it in order to connect with these ostracized individuals. I think back to these lessons that she learned in adolescence, right? Like not too long ago, she experienced the heartbreak of being misunderstood and excluded for being a little bit different. Pair this with that experience of compassion exuding from psychedelic experimentation. And I think she realized that all people deserve to be heard and understood no matter how different or strange we may view their perspective. Her empathy wouldn't stop here. Soon, a novel drug would hit the 80s dance floor, sending Julie and her already resolute sense of empathy soaring even higher. Um, I want to talk about uh, going into that, that major, going into University of Pennsylvania, and specifically leading up to your discovery of MDMA in 85. Right. Well, I'd love to say that I discovered it, but unfortunately someone, <laughs> someone beat me to it, but it was or your it personal was, discovery. Right, it was definitely my personal, like, what, what is this? So, right. So, so I'm in high school, very interested in biology, psychology, psychiatry, um, really good grades, great SAT scores, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I'm applying to like all the good schools, but of all those schools, only one of them had had a major that sort of combined biology and and psychology. Every other college, I was going to have to double major in bio and psych. But Penn had this major called the biological basis of behavior that was a combination of biology and psychology and Within the major of the biological basis of behavior, there was a concentration in psychopharmacology. And I took like every class in that major, every class in that concentration. Um, the other thing I did at Penn was I took a lot of classes in human sexuality. And so the joke, and also I was singing in a band, I was like fronting a rock band. So the joke was that like in college, I, I majored in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. If you can imagine, you know, being a being pre-med, being interested in psychiatry, being very interested in drugs in the brain, and then there's a new drug, you know, that sort of busts out onto the scene. Because up until 85, you know, we only had like, you know, pot and cigarettes and alcohol and LSD and mushrooms. And that was pretty much it. You know, I thought we could get mescaline. Turns out it wasn't that easy. But, you know, there were really just like five or six drugs. So all of a sudden there was a new drug. I was like, oh, my God that's so great. It, I mean, if it was an, any new drug, I would have been excited. But this was a drug that was actually being used within the context of psychotherapy as a catalyst to make the therapy go deeper. And that was my introduction to MDMA, was that like a bunch of therapists and psychiatrists were using um, these pills with their clients to get them to sort of get to a deeper level and processing their trauma. And then the drug was made illegal because people were partying with it. And all the psychiatrists, they had their tools taken away. So I got very involved in the whole uh, psychiatrists are suing the DEA so that they can they can have their medicine back sort of uh, thing that was going on. So I didn't I did not I did not testify or anything like that. But one of the things that I did was I got in touch with everybody who was testifying and I got in touch with the person who was organizing the lawsuit. And this is as an undergrad. Did you want to experiment with MDMA as you had these other um, other drugs or did that not interest you and you were purely focused? Oh, no, absolutely. No, I wanted to and I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell me about your first experience. Well, my very first experience taking MDMA 
um, I was alone, which was which was pretty much how I tried every first drug. I always like to just kind of do things alone with a paper and, and pen and write down like what time I took it and what happened. So I was alone. Um, but the very first time I took MDMA, the thing I remember the most was how quiet my head got. That the, the little narrative that's always going just stopped. And my head was very quiet. And if I wanted to conjure up a thought, I could. But if I wanted to just enjoy the spaciousness of my head without any thoughts, that was perfectly available to me. Um, I'd never really had that before. And it was luxurious for me just just to be bathed in that silence. Um, but And then I did uh, a lot of self-exploration. I wrote about 30 pages front and back. Um, just trying to get to some issues with myself and, uh, you know, things around like maybe my relationship with food or cigarettes or other people. You know, I was just like doing a lot of self-analysis um, and it felt really easy to do it. And the other thing I remember that really made an impression on me, um, usually if I'm if I'm thinking something and I'm writing it down, this, this is before computers almost, right? I mean, this was like, uh, you know, I had a pad of paper and a pen, you know, that's how I was taking notes. But I remember that the speed of my thoughts was synchronized to my, the speed of my writing. Usually if I'm writing, I have to rehearse things so I don't forget it while I'm writing them down. But this was somehow where it was perfectly synced up. And as fast as I could write, that's as slow as my thoughts were. Um, and that it felt so comfortable to me to be able to sort of get my thoughts out um, without having to rehearse them before I forgot them. So th those were the main things for me. It was like a very quiet mind and like a slowed, controlled delivery of my thoughts. Was this an experience that you believed could happen like as much as you wanted? Or did you realize that it had to be somewhat infrequent? Were you worried about like depleting I don't know, serotonin or dopamine levels? Uh, was there like the three month rule or the three to five week break rule? Like, was there any kind of rules that you were following in this experimentation? Okay, so this is 1985. So no, none of those things, none of those things are even coming up, right? First of all, it's, I mean, it, it was a big exhausting thing. It's not like I would go back and do it again the next day or even the next weekend. Like I think intuitively I knew this is not something to do frequently. But there was no talk back then about, you know, neurotoxicity or how long you should wait to do things. I mean, the, the, that sort of information came much, much later. For physiological reasons and for psychological reasons, this is not a medicine that you want to take with any sort of regularity or frequency, that it really, it should be spaced out. And then the other issue is that you don't have to keep taking it. You know, you have, you have two or three important sessions where you dig up a lot and process a lot and then you're done. You know, you don't keep going back over and over. It seems totally wasted as like a rave drug, honestly. I feel funny saying that I was a raver, but I will say that I definitely went, I went to raves. I went to all night underground dance parties where a lot of people took ecstasy. Um, I do think, and I did think, uh, that there is something very therapeutic about being amongst a group of people who are happy and ecstatic and dancing and loving life and loving each other and and loving the sort of to get togetherness and group mind that happens on the dance floor. So you know, I had I had really ecstatic dance experiences um, that I found therapeutic. Being able to have these very intense, open-hearted conversations with strangers, which really, I would say, I honed that craft, you know, in undergrad, in the rave community. And so when I eventually did become a psychiatrist, I was very good at dropping into a, a level of intimacy uh, and getting getting past the sort of, you know, superficial chit-chat very easily and quickly with people, partly because I'd had these, these really intense heart opening conversations with people at, at raves and other gatherings like that. MDMA was Julie's gateway to heart opening discussions, both with others in the chill out rooms and with herself in introspection. Amidst the sea of streaming neon lights and pulsating euphoric techno, Julie was observing the very same components of MDMA that maybe are being utilized for psychotherapeutic purposes today. So a little background on this. 
MDMA releases feel-good neurochemicals like serotonin and oxytocin that puts the brakes on the part of the brain that activate fear. This is what allowed for her to have this serene thought control as she sat alone or if she sat in the middle of a rave. She recognized early on that there were these healing psychological powers MDMA held. Recent years of clinical trials have shown that MDMA allows patients to analyze and resolve traumatic memories that are otherwise clouded behind walls of fear and shame. But because it was outlawed at the time, Julie would have to put any therapeutic MDMA applications on the back burner. Luckily, Julie would discover another place where she could fuse the chaotic energy of the rave scene and the clinical analysis of scientific research. That place would be Bellevue Psychiatric. What were the long-term effects on your EQ of dealing with such a high-stress environment? Well, initially, when I was at Bellevue, I really went into that cowboy, John Wayne, James Dean, tough tomboy mode. That was totally how I dealt because it's a lot of it is really sad. If I wanted to, I could sit and cry over anybody's story in that place. Like there are sad, terrible stories. A lot of people have had horrible childhoods, really traumatic things happen to them. And that is why they've gotten to the place they are where they're coming into the psychiatric emergency room and needing help. The truth is everybody has a sob story and that and that's not relevant. You know, what we need to know now is, are they suicidal? Are they homicidal? Can they care for themselves? Are they like so grossly disorganized and psychotic that they can't even care for themselves? Do they meet criteria for an involuntary admission? Should we take away their civil liberties to commit them to the hospital? Or um, can they make it on their own and they don't want to be here? My biggest responsibility was deciding whether I'm going to let somebody, you know, run free or whether we got to, you know, rein them in and put a leash on them and keep them in the, in the psyche are and, and, you know, admit them against their will. You know, this is America, you know, you're allowed to do what you want, aren't you? You know, so I, I really would focus on, you know, where somebody else's rights began, where this person's rights end. Julie was the one to determine who was what. She was more than a psychiatrist. She was almost like this gatekeeper of liberty. Although being institutionalized provides patients with the treatment they need, it prevents them from living life on their own terms. Embedded into the U.S.'s fabric is this Lockean notion that everyone is naturally born with a right to freedom, to self-autonomy. But when someone is naturally born with brain chemistry that could potentially cause harm to others, to encroach on the rights of others, then when is it justified to say their natural state revokes their right to freedom? These are immensely complex and weighted decisions to navigate. It would take someone with bold cowboy-like bravery to even attempt these decisions. So Julie had to explore this frontier and work scrupulously towards justice. Was there a specific patient that you were really interested by? I'll tell you who I was very interested in, honestly. Um, the, the guy who pushed Kendra Webdale from the subway platform to her death is a guy named uh, Andrew Goldstein. Um, and he was a very smart guy. And so, you know, the night the night that Kendra was pushed and, and died, um, we saw a few different people in the psyche. Uh, the, the person who drove the subway train came in. Uh, a person who was on the platform and saw what happened came in. But the pusher... Where's the pusher? Where's the guy who did the pushing? Why isn't he coming in? Because, you know, usually anybody who is arrested and then says that they have a psych history or says they're hearing voices or says they're on psych meds, they have to go to Bellevue to get cleared. He didn't show up until the next shift the next day. I talked to him. I talked to him when he came in. I, I went and visited him upstairs. But, you know, I just asked him to kind of, you know, walk me through what happened and, you know, where he had been and what was going on and um, just to get a sense uh, of if he even really understood, you know, what had happened. Because but it you wasn't... cared about him personally, or is that just your mission? <sighs> I did care about him personally. I do, you know, I care about all the patients at Bellevue personally. <laughs> I mean, uh, I cared about Kendra Webdale. I talked to, you know, her mother. Uh, I cared about her and her family and everything they went through. I mean, you know, it's possible that something terrible happens and you can have sympathy for both, you know, the offender and the offendee. I mean, I wrote about this, uh, you know, in the book that like my, my heart really went out to like Andrew's family and Kendra's family. Like something terrible had happened and both families felt terrible. And it's so and you can have sympathy for both sides. In the midst of this horrific accident, where it seems like the aggressor and victim are obvious, Julie has this more complicated view. 
She could see the pain that existed on both sides. And I think here, Julie once again shows that she wants to do more than just medicate her patients. She wants to understand them. And she has this unique ability to see past the prejudice, past the judgment, past the assumptions, and truly help people where they need it and when they're at their worst. But Julie's unwavering dedication to and compassion for the patients at Bellevue would have consequences for her personal life. So I had a patient who was giving a lot of information that didn't really add up. And he was giving an address where he lived that was really close to where I live. That when I asked him questions about the neighborhood, he did not know a thing about the neighborhood. And I realized it was a fake address. And then I didn't know if it was a fake name. And I just I went out to confront him and I said to him, you know, some of the doctors and nurses here feel like the information you're giving isn't adding up. You know, some of us are wondering if maybe you're feigning your symptoms. And he said, feigning. And I said, faking. And then he punched me in the face. Immediately, one of the nurses, the psych techs who was on the floor, just like literally tackled him and was on him. This very large woman named April. And I remember her saying like, I got him, doc. Like she was just on him. And then I said to her, you know, I want to press charges because he wasn't a patient. He was posing as a patient and he was faking. I really think he just needed to get off the street. He was in hiding. You know, he was he was definitely one of these guys with like his hoodie over his head and sitting down low and looking over his shoulder like he, he was hiding out from somebody. Four months later, three o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call, like an automated recording saying, you know, the prisoner, like 71423, you know, uh, is being released tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. No further information. And then the recording hangs up and I'm just like holding the phone at three in the morning, realizing that the guy that I sent to Rikers for four months is now going to be out. Is he going to try to find me? I have no idea. Like, you know, I'm hoping he's got bigger fish to fry and something else on his mind. But I I honestly didn't know if he was going to, you know, if he's pissed at me because I sent him to prison or if, you know, he needed to be in prison and he's fine. No hard feelings, you know. So it was a really scary time for me. And it actually coincided with the time that I was sort of being stalked by an ex-psychiatrist from Bellevue. So that was a very uh, dramatic time in my life. It helped, you know, it was good to write about (laughs) for the the book, but it was not, it was not so pleasant to actually live through it. I was really fearful for my safety for a period of time at Bellevue. Do you think becoming a mother softened you? There's no question. My nine years at Bellevue, I was pregnant twice. I delivered two healthy babies and I nursed each of them for two years. That's a lot of oxytocin going down, right? Between pregnancy and delivery and nursing, those are all high oxytocin states. So I do think that that whole process softened me. Like it was inevitable that it was going to soften me. And, and it, there's no question that it was harder for me to sort of man up and buck up and be the cowboy that I started out as by the end of it. I honestly think that my brain changed when I was pregnant with Molly. I think that's true, but I think, I mean, regardless of like the chemical balance shifting, I think you you still rationalize it probably a little bit, right? Or what was the thought process? One of the things I noticed when I got back to work after my maternity leave with Molly was that my brain was different. I couldn't multitask the way I had before. I used to be able to listen to a case while writing another case. I couldn't do that. Like whatever I listened to would start to bleed through when I was writing. So my my brain got rewired either during the pregnancy a little bit, during the delivery a lot, during the nursing a lot. Something had really changed where my, my brain was fundamentally different after I came back from my first maternity leave. You know, one of the things that oxytocin does besides sort of open open you to being more vulnerable, wanting to connect, I just, I couldn't access that same sort of, I don't care, um, I don't need to hear about that trauma history because that's not important now. I just, you know, I didn't have that same sort of brusque dis- dismissiveness of other people's pain that I had before my pregnancies. Years of building her tomboy exterior and getting her reputation at Bellevue didn't prepare Julie for how different a life with children would be. Motherhood seemed to push her to grow out of her cowboy personality and develop a new softer side. But she wanted to stay, to continue treating these people society overlooked. So she persevered. She wasn't going to be the mom that left because she got too soft. She was going to be John Wayne. She was going to be Jodie Foster. But even though Julie stayed... Bellevue evolved around her. How do you decide to end your time at Bellevue? 
the big thing for me was that we were seeing more and more police cases. A higher percentage of the patients that were coming through the psych ER were being processed because they had been arrested. And we start at first, we were just doing the people who'd been arrested in Manhattan. And then they started adding other boroughs. And so we were getting like a higher percentage of prisoners and police in the area than we ever used to. And I got tired of the sort of cops and robbers aspect of it. My private practice was bigger and bigger, and I knew that I could just do private practice. I didn't need to work in the psych, psych ER anymore. I had been there longer than anybody else. I had proved my point, you know, like no, nobody lasts nine years in the psych ER. And it was like my point was that I could stay there longer than anybody else. Then my not so best friend and in some ways sort of like arch nemesis enemy to some degree, at least for purposes of writing a book, he was, he became my, he became my new boss. And that was kind of terrible. And then he left. And then the person who took over for him was even worse. And so, you know, it was just like this. It's not the same place anymore. It was, you know, death by a thousand cuts. And I finally, it was like, I just, I just couldn't sort of fit in there anymore. I couldn't just sort of tough it out. So I left. Well, it's funny because my husband would ask me a lot, like, what is taking the place of Bellevue for you? I, you know, I don't really have a good answer for that. I mean, you know, I turned into like a, you know, soccer mom. Like I have two kids. We ended up buying a house. Like, you know, I just I grew up a little bit and my life, you know, moved on. I stayed on voluntary faculty, actually, for like a dozen years after I didn't, you know, I was still very involved with NYU and with Bellevue and I was on the faculty and I, and I was absolutely instrumental in NYU creating their psychedelic research center. Bellevue changed around Julie. The hospital's bigger involvement with NYPD led to more arrests and I feel like this strayed away from how Julie wanted to help these people. But her dedication to her patients remained constant. She saw beyond the solution of locking patients up even when no one was ready for those solutions. Julie will never accept something for how it is. She's always been ahead of the curve as a 10-year-old, as a teenager, as a student, as a medical professional. She's promoted progressive techniques to treat mental illness. Her combination of curiosity, compassion, and gumption pushed her to new levels in research and policy proposals. Her understanding of drugs through experience, research, and education makes her recommendations for psychedelic therapy holistically informed. She's experienced the therapeutic effects firsthand. She understands them on a medical level, and she's witnessed it help patients of her own. Even though Julie has been promoting this medical development for decades, even she admits it will take time to come around. I want to transition into your research now, specifically maybe some of your work that's sponsored by MAPS. So MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and they are a consortium of scientists and clinicians and MDs and PhDs from around the world that uh, feel, as I do, that there are drugs that some people may consider to be like drugs of abuse or illegal drugs, but, but that these drugs are actually therapeutic and can really sort of fill a, a niche that is, that is sorely missing in psychiatry. You know, the truth is we are not that great in psychiatry at curing anything. We're, we're pretty good at giving you a daily dose of medicine that can make you forget that you have some symptoms, but we don't really uh, fix things very often in psychiatry. Psychedelics are, are ways to really have very efficient and effective therapeutic sessions. So they're really catalysts, you know, they're tools. In the context of ongoing therapy, they act as catalysts or tools to make the therapy go deeper and go faster. And, you know, good therapy takes years and years and it happens in kind of fits and starts and, you know, one step forward, two steps back. This is a way for it to happen in a much more straightforward through line that's, that's much more effective. So I've been involved in uh, being the medical monitor for, for MAPS studies from the very beginning. So medical monitor means that I help make sure everything is safe, that I review the protocols, that I review the, the inclusion and exclusion criteria in terms of who, who gets run through the study, what the doses are, how far apart they're given. You know, that the, the medical monitor is there to assure safety. 
And if anything comes up during the studies, if if there is some sort of adverse event or side effect or something that happens, we need to figure out, first of all, what to do. And second of all, how do you categorize this? Because, you know, one of the important things when you're doing research is that you have to categorize everything and report everything. So you have to decide if this adverse event was expected or unexpected, if it has anything to do with a study drug or if it has nothing to do with a study drug. And sometimes that might sound very straightforward, but honestly, sometimes those questions really require two or three people to sit there and put their heads together and figure out exactly what happened and, and what makes sense. For decades, I was one of the medical monitors or the medical monitor for uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy studies and also for cannabis PTSD studies. But more recently, because MAPS is getting so big and there's a huge multi-center trial going on, these phase three trials for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and the treatment of PTSD, now I'm a medical advisor, which means that if there's a question that can't be answered or if there's an argument that can't be decided, they will come to me and I will tell them what I think. In some ways, it's, it's that I am like older and aging out and being phased out, which is absolutely fine with me, except for a brief period of time. I've always worked for MAPS for free. I've always donated my time and my services to them. And two of my five books are nonprofit projects where all the proceeds from book sales go toward MAPS to help fund clinical research. So I've been involved with MAPS since before MAPS was even MAPS. I'm very impressed with how far MAPS has come and how far MDMA-assisted psychotherapy has come. And, you know, psilocybin is right on the heels of MDMA in terms of FDA approval. And pretty soon there are going to be some different ways that people can get treatment that they really haven't had access to before. And it is, it's going to be disruptive to the field of psychiatry. And I am really looking forward to that disruption. Psychiatry needs a bit of a disruptive technology at this point. MAP specializes in this disruptive technology Julie's talking about, and their highest priority is drug development research. I think Julie puts it perfectly. They want to make illegal drugs therapeutic. So Julie's passionate about MDMA, and MAPS has a goal to use it in PTSD therapy. That is huge steps for the drug. MAPS is actually making progress in testing MDMA, and it even predicts that it will be FDA approved as soon as 2023. The developments of MAPS work will revolutionize psychiatric treatment and maybe bring psychedelics to the table for recreational legalization. Who knows? And I think that future could be sooner than we realize. Can you paint me a picture of what you think the future looks like? The future of psychedelics, that is. The future is now. I mean, things are happening already so quickly. It took a couple decades, really, for medical cannabis to kind of fully be accepted and be on the scene. And everybody had a long time to get used to that. But what's happening with psychedelics is it's going to happen much more quickly. The green rush that happened with cannabis it really happened over a period of decades where people got used to the idea of medical cannabis and then they got used to the idea of legal cannabis. With psychedelics, that's happening really over a period of months or years and not decades. It's sort of like a telescoped, more intense version. It's happening more quickly, but it is definitely happening. MDMA and, and psilocybin will eventually be FDA approved medicines and psychedelic assisted psychotherapy will become more and more common. I mean, people are already really getting used to that idea through ketamine. There's a lot of ketamine clinics in place in New York City and uh, in other big cities around America. And, you know, ketamine is already completely legal. And so there's a lot of clinics that are sprouting up that are offering ketamine-assisted psychotherapy with the hopes that as soon as MDMA and, and psilocybin are FDA-approved, they will be able to offer those therapies instead or in addition to ketamine. So the groundwork is really being laid out between medical cannabis and ketamine. And now, and now what you see happening is that there are multiple cities and states that are pursuing decriminalization. You've got these little pockets of decriminalized nature where they have pushed to change the policy so that plant medicines and mushrooms, you know, if they're not sort of legal and being sold in stores, they are at least decriminalized and deprioritized for the police. That is another area where you're sort of seeing the groundwork being laid for changing drug policy. What advice would you give your 20, 25-year-old self, that person that that maybe is seeing the future, but a future that hasn't materialized? 
I, you know, I don't know if it's advice, but you know, sometimes I just, I just like sort of have to say to myself, it's not advice, but I'm like, you were right. You were right. You were right. Because at the time, you know, when you're, when you're like a sophomore in college and you're spouting needle exchange and supervised injection sites and MDMA assisted psychotherapy, the biggest thing for me, honestly, as, as an undergrad, because I was a pre-med and my grades, all the grades really mattered is I would get very frustrated if I would get a bad grade on a paper because I was saying something that's so far out. You know, like I fought when I, when I, you know, I got A's on those papers eventually, (laughs) you know? There was one on harm reduction, there was one on MDMA, and I had to really go back to the people and be like, look, this is a real thing, you know, and uh, this paper deserves an A. So I don't know what advice that would give me because I, I did know I was right. I did fight for it. I guess, you know, the advice I would say is like, don't worry, eventually people are going to come around your way of thinking and don't give up and you know what's right. And, you know, like, I don't know, follow your heart, believe your intuition. Julie has always been driven by her curiosity. She experimented with drinking and smoking in her childhood and moved on to psychedelics in her teenage years. Recording everything, every feeling and thought during these experiences, she started her research career by being her own test subject. But she grew up and she didn't want to just experience these things. She actually made it her career to create change in this industry. She quickly realized her empathy puts her ahead in the psychiatric research field. Medical professionals gawked at her proposals in the 80s. Condom distribution centers during the AIDS epidemic. Needle swaps, supervised injection sites. It seems that now we are just catching up to her vision. It was her desire to understand the people society overlooked. And that allowed her to create impactful solutions. Julie was right, plain and simple. She's kind of always been right. And she's an example of what can come with undying persistence. MDMA is on its way to becoming an FDA-approved drug. And today, Julie can look at her decades of work and know, despite what everyone has said, she has been on the cusp of a revolution. She knows that even in our lives, true persistence and compassion will always put you ahead. Thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and rate us five stars. If you liked the episode or had a question or just wanted to chat, DM me on Instagram at Finding Founders Podcast. Finding Founders is created, produced, and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our editing team lead is Adrian Tapia with support from Sophia Donner, Matt Fernandez, and Maura Lynch. Our script writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Elise Caldwell, Kylie McCrary, and Beatrice Phillips. Our outreach team leads are Jessica Lynn and Ankita Nambiar with support from Lisa Lay, Marie Vaughn, Melody Sabani, and Sarah Hobson. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanan with support from Eli Lawrence, Melanie Mock, and Tiff Dang. See you next week. 